You're listening to the Table Church Podcast. The Table is a community in Orville, California that aims to follow Jesus by doing what he did. Love God, love our neighbors, and serve those in need. Find us at thetablechurch.net, Instagram, or Facebook. And now for the message. We're getting close to the end of our series on relationships. It's this week and next week. And so we're wrapping up. Uh, We're getting into some harder stuff for sure relationship series. As always, if you have any questions, this is the phone number you can send it. I do have my phone with me today, and so if you do send it, I'll do my best to receive it. Please feel free to send any question you have. Nothing off limits. I do it uh, anonymously. It's actually anonymous to me unless I have your contact information on my phone, then it 100% isn't. So just total, (laughs) just a total heads up. A couple of quick announcements about sermon series is that next week I'm inviting an, a real expert so you can hear me say things, but we're going to be interviewing Angie next week. She's a marriage and family therapist. And so if you have questions about for her about what she does, feel free to be sending those throughout the week or even today. We can get those uh, prepared for next week. Um, but interview style sermon next week, just talking about canceling. And I'm hoping to talk a little bit about what reentering the world looks like as, as we're talking about relationships when relationships have been thin for the last year. And so, um, yeah, be prepared. We're going to wrap it up with her. I brought in the big guns to just really bless the whole thing. Lastly, today, uh, we are going to be talking about some sensitive material. Parents, you may read the screen if you want. Uh, The last point I have is going to be addressing some physical intimacy stuff, which is something we don't usually talk about at church, and there are kids in the room. So you can keep, it's your call. You're the boss. Uh, It's PG, but it will, it's going to acknowledge that this exists and that the Bible talks about it. Nothing more than that. Um, but any child of any age is more than welcome in, child, in, the, in the kids' table, and so um, you're more than welcome to do that. It's my last point. I'll give you another heads up, and the kids actually will be about that time outside um, doing chalk, and so if you want to, by before the last point, head on out there. You're more than welcome. I'm not offended. Take a nap. I don't know what you want to do. If it's a little awkward, you just doze off a little bit, I'm okay. <laughs> but we need to address it, I think. And so the title of today's sermon is called Ordinary Intimacy. Ordinary Intimacy, because we want to talk about it not just in that aspect, but in all aspects. This word intimacy is kind of scary. I just know the, some of the guys in my life are just like, uh, this word is, can be scary, can be uh, abrasive. And so, um, but I'm just, I want to talk about it in a lot of facets of our life. Uh, but as always, I want to start with the bad news. And I think the bad news is, is that we live in a world that prioritizes prosperity over people live in a world that prioritizes prosperity over people. I became a Christian when I was 15. I I went into a church, uh, followed my wife into a church, then a girlfriend that I was interested in, and became a Christian. And so I was relearning a lot of things. And then I got to go to school. I got to go to Chico State. And man, I saw Jesus everywhere as I was kind of learning and growing. And one of the places I saw Jesus was I took a class, a philosophy of family class, And here's the first four professors listed on their page for philosophy. And I had all of them. I have a minor in philosophy. But the one that made the most impact is this dude on the beach. He, he has zero cares. This is, look at He's got a tie. He's in front of a chalkboard. Nice headshot. This person was like, I'm not doing your photos. And this guy's like, here's one of me in Cancun. <laughs> like, <laughs> Anthony Graybosch 
was a boss. This guy, he forgot more about philosophy than I would ever know. But I took a philosophy of family class from him, and he opened my mind to thinking about the way that sometimes our culture prioritizes prosperity over people. And really how he did it was when he was talking about how we uh, raise children. And I don't know if he's right, but he got me thinking. He was just like, really, for the first time in history, we are setting children up to be more financially successful than relationally successful. We have them move out of everywhere they know and everyone they love and go chase money somewhere. And for most of history, it was how do we help you integrate into the community in a successful way? And, he, and then he said, I'd rather have a child that I can get along with than one who's financially successful. And I was like, this goes against everything I had thought about when it came to like setting children up for success and getting them out of the nest. Uh, now I kind of want them to move out just to have them move out a little. I'm like, I know you're five. Can you get a job or something? But he opened my mind to this idea that like relational success has been the way that people have done it for a long time. It wasn't that people never moved away, but it was just that there was, it was a community-minded situation. That sometimes we are setting people up for prosperity, to prioritize prosperity over people. And then I've been watching The Mighty Ducks on Disney Plus and the opening scene. If, there's this theme in, in shows where like the thing that you used to love as a kid has now become the bad guy. And that like uh, Cobra Kai, I don't know, I'm getting off. That's what happens with The Mighty Ducks. It was this ragtag group of people and they became champions. And now they're the bad guys because there's a theme. There's an idea, an ideal of prioritizing prosperity over people. So here's a clip from that where she gives her, like, opening speech. Take a listen. But aren't you always saying you can't measure heart? Yeah, that's something I got off the Internet, and I'm phasing it out. Look, I'm doing you a favor, man. You should find something you can be really good at. I mean, at, at this age, if you can't be great at hockey, it's like... Don't bother. Head up. Don't bother. Don't bother. Mom, please. You know, I, I never bought into any of this craziness. I just did it because my kid loves hockey, but I guess that doesn't matter now. So let me lay a couple of truths on you guys. This scene is nuts. The 6 a.m. practices, the $1,000 clinics, the godlike worship of protein. Do you understand that there is about zero chance that any one of these kids is gonna play professional hockey? So why are you living like this? Stephanie, you brought two private trainers to your kids' hockey practice. Does that seem normal to you? Oh, I'm not a trainer. I'm a pediatric sports psychologist. Does no one see the insanity but me? Look, these parents are serious, all right? They pay me to win. We're not here to have fun. Guys, shouldn't kids be able to play sports for fun? <laughs> wow. <sighs> okay. These are children. This is a game. You're telling my son, don't bother. You don't bother, sir. You don't bother. We are out of here.
it hit me with our topic this week of prioritizing people over prior, prioritizing prosperity over people. Doesn't the coach kind of look like the older brother from Home Improvement slash the bad guy from Rocky, like the Russian bad guy? He's like a mixture, perfectly cast. Here's the good news for today, and it comes from John 15, and I think it's going to inform what we're doing and what we're talking about when it comes to intimacy. Give you the context. Jesus is getting ready to go to the cross like the next day. This is called the Upper Room Discourse. It's chapters 13 through 17. And Jesus is just sitting with his disciples, having his last meal, washing his feet, and giving them some final teaching. And so out of everything being said today, this is the most important part. Even though it's a wall of text, I know it could be hard. Jesus says, as the Father has loved me, I too loved you. Remain in my love. And if you keep my commandments, you will remain in my love. Just as I kept my Father's commandments and remain in his love. I have said these things to you so that my joy will be in you and your joy will be complete. This is my commandment, to love each other just as I have loved you. No one has greater love than to give up one's life for one's friends. And you are my friends if you do what I command. I don't call you servants any longer because servants don't know uh, what their master is doing. Instead, I call you friends because everything I've heard from my father, I have made known to you. That's it. So what are the three points we're going to take from that? The first one is, is that you were made for close relationships. Jesus wants you to know that this is part and parcel of what his mission is, this kingdom thing. He, you are made for close relationships. He says, everything I heard from my father, I've made known to you. And this is why he calls us now his friends and not just servants or disciples or some other official title. He wants to call us friends because he's revealing to us the stuff from God. Jesus wants us to know that we were made for close friends. I have another video clip. It's a little bit longer. Um, I trot it out probably once a year because I love it so much. Uh, I think his name's John Waldinger. He is uh, the head of what is called the Harvard study, and he's going to let you know about it. But essentially what he did, he's the fourth director of a study that studied uh, men over 75 years of their life. And he has some conclusions to us about what makes for good life. Listen to this. Man. Pictures of entire lives, of the choices that people make and how those choices work out for them, those pictures are almost impossible to get. What if we could watch entire lives as they unfold through time? What if we could study people? from the time that they were teenagers all the way into old age to see what really keeps people happy and healthy. We did that. The Harvard study of adult development may be the longest study of adult life that's ever been done. For 75 years, we've tracked the lives of 724 men year after year, asking about their work, their home lives, their health, and of course asking all along the way without knowing how their life stories were going to turn out. And I'm the fourth director of the study. <laughs> Since 1938, we've tracked the lives of two groups of men. The first group started in the study when they were sophomores at Harvard College. They all finished college during World War II, and then most went off to serve in the war. And the second group that we've followed was a group of boys from Boston's poorest neighborhoods, 
boys who were chosen for the study specifically because they were from some of the most troubled and disadvantaged families in the Boston of the 1930s. Most lived in tenements, many without hot and cold running water. When they entered the study, all of these teenagers were interviewed, they were given medical exams, we went to their homes and we interviewed their parents. And then these teenagers grew up into adults who entered all walks of life. They became factory workers and lawyers and bricklayers and doctors, one president of the United States. Every two years, our patient and dedicated research staff calls up our men and asks them if we can send them yet one more set of questions about their lives. Many of the inner-city Boston men ask us, why do you keep wanting to study me? My life just isn't that interesting. The Harvard men never ask that question. <laughs> to get the clearest picture of these lives, we don't just send them questionnaires. We interview them in their living rooms. We get their medical records from their doctors. We draw their blood. We scan their brains. We talk to their children. We videotape them talking with their wives about their deepest concerns. And when, about a decade ago, we finally asked the wives if they would join us as members of the study, many of the women said, you know, it's about time. <laughs> so what have we learned? What are the lessons that come from the tens of thousands of pages of information that we've generated on these lives. Well, the lessons aren't about wealth or fame or working harder and harder. The clearest message that we get from this 75-year study is this. Good relationships keep us happier and healthier, period. I always appreciate that because it's one thing for me to stand and say. It's one thing for me to try to pull some scripture out and tell you about it. And it's another thing for the science to back it up. So the science confirms this. I mean, the longest study that he knows of, of people's lives. And this is the thing. I mean, he ends with the word period. How much more dramatic can you get? You're like, thank you. You handed me a gift uh, to prove my point. You were made for close relationships. This isn't just a theological truth that I'm trying to impart to you. This is... Uh, backed up by all the science we have. The quality of your life is determined by the depth of your relationships. Jesus reveals this, that when we, we live in the stream of God's design for us, when we live in close relationships. What does God want us to take away from this? Also as well, point number two here, is that God wants us to experience intimacy in the relationships around us. Lots of different relationships, friendship, family, and faith family. As Jesus said, my commandment is for you to love each other just as I have loved you. I call you friends because I've heard everything I've heard I've revealed to you. This really is the universal theological truth. This is it. That intimate love comes from Jesus supernaturally, and he commands it to us and for us, and he models it to us and for us. You don't have to guess. Jesus shows us. I want you to love each other as I have loved you. This is the, the standard for the relationships that Jesus has for us. And he's not talking to spouses. He's talking to a group of men in their 30s, hanging out. This is how I want you to relate to one another, right? Not, 
not in these certain segmented relationships, in your relationships. Ultimately, the theological truth here is that Jesus is the source and model of this love. What is intimacy, especially when it comes to friendships? Uh, lots of things that it's not. It's not probably social media. Uh, it's probably not wealth or fame, right? These kind of things that sometimes we try to use to define our relationships or define ourselves. These things can sometimes get in the way. Dictionary definition, close familiarity or friendship, a closeness. Uh, a book that we had read a, a number of years ago that the, the idea still sticks with me is this word frentimacy, uh, helping us to think about our friends in a way that we can have deeper relationships with them. Uh, this woman, she, her science that she brought to the conversation, which I, I don't know if it's true, you could take it or leave it, but she said, this question will determine so much about your future health. How loved and supported do you feel? She says, this question, the, your answer to this question is more important than the health habits you have. She says, than smoking, than obesity, about the same as uh, hard alcoholism. This question and the answer to this question will determine the quality of life that you have. Her definition of friendship is any relationship between two people where they both feel seen in a safe and satisfying way. Just hitting those triple S's because this is a classic pastoral move that has like alliteration. I'm like, she's speaking my language. She's talking about being seen. You need to feel seen. Seen has to do with vulnerability and being your authentic self. Can you be yourself around somebody and be accepted to be welcomed? This is part of being seen. What does it mean to be safe? Uh, in this context, and for her, safe has to do with the ability to trust, and trust is usually generated by consistency, consistent good behavior, consistent welcoming behavior, consistent seeing behavior. So to feel safe, you need to feel a, a level of trust. And lastly, uh, relationships need to be satisfying, and she said they should bring joy, and there should be a five-to-one ratio of positive interactions because any good relationship is going to have some negative re uh, interactions, but ultimately uh, mostly positive, which is good, right? That's a helpful standard. To it's like sometimes I'm like I don't know, man. This feels like more more negative than positive. Um, but those are her three definitions for friendship. It's uh, relationships where you can feel seen, safe, and it's satisfying. And I think that's helpful. And that's the kind of relationships that Jesus is inviting us into when he's talking about friendships, when he's talking about asking us to love one another, when he's asking us to take the love that we received from God and apply it to the people around us. Lastly, since we're talking about the word, last point, last call. Everybody's heart stop. When it comes to marital intimacy, which we talked about marriage last week. Last call? Okay. <laughs> All of the above are necessary. You need to have friendships with your spouse. You need to feel seen. Yeah? You need to feel safe. This is going to make marital intimacy so much more powerful. This is going to make marital intimacy uh, so much deeper, so much more connecting. When you have those friendships, when you're modeling uh, a depth of relationship uh, with your spouse that Jesus is calling us to with lots of different kinds of people. But the uh, difference, uh, at least scripturally and in the church, is that we add to it passionate physical intimacy. And because biblically, what God wants to convey to us about this is that sex is good. And I know the church has been 
horrible at talking about this in a helpful way. Usually it's a lot of rules. Usually it's a lot of checklists. Usually it's a lot of marginalization or there's in and out groups. We, we believe wholeheartedly that people are saved by grace and not by good works. And yet somehow in this realm of life, people are kicked out. You know what I mean? Like I got all kinds of sins and no, no one's ever like, you're out. But like these kind of things get people tossed out. We have not approached this well. And we don't have many topics, uh, we don't have many passages in the Bible that, that give us an in-depth conversation about this topic, but the ones that we do have say it's great. It's something given to us by the Creator. We're going to go through it in a minute. But this is Paul in 1 Corinthians 7. I told you, if you want to know the Bible's most intense teachings on marriage, the beginning of Matthew 19, which we've gone through twice now in this series, in 1 Corinthians 7. And there's some hard stuff in there where Paul says, I mean, just be, just be single and celibate as long as you can. Forever is best. <laughs> uh, but if you can't, he's like, if you're just not strong enough, like he, they really do, which is always confusing me because the church has, has kind of sometimes promoted marriage as the pinnacle of relationship. And the Bible's like, it might be spiritual failure. Like if you weren't strong enough, I guess get married. Like that's the Bible's... Uh, but ultimately, when they do talk about this topic, it's good. Paul says, now about what you wrote, you asked me a question. It's good for a man not to have sex with a woman. And he said, the husband should meet his wife's needs. And the wife should meet, do the same for her husband. He said, don't refuse to meet with each other unless you both agree for a short period of time to have like a prayer fast. It's like, uh, devote yourselves to prayer. Then come back together again so Satan doesn't tempt you because of your lack of self-control. I'm saying this to you to give you permission. It's not a command. So don't feel any guilt or obligation in this. is isn't like you have to do this. He says very clearly it's just wisdom, right? It's not a command. But what he's saying is like go at it. Have fun. It's like really. Like don't take breaks unless it's for prayer. And that's it. And you're like thank you, Paul. I appreciate it. Because in religious circles, we're like, we're not talking about it. It's not, you know, there's all the rules about what not to do. But when Paul is telling people what to do, it's, it's, it's go for it, right? Ultimately, what Scripture wants us to know is it's good. It's given to us by the Creator. Uh, there are boundaries put in it. And this is, uh, the next part about this is I, I always come to this topic and I think about the rules because we've just hit the rules so much. Aaron and I were seniors in high school. Uh, and we were part of the True Love Waits campaign, and so they, they brought us out and lo- let us talk to lots of kids, me and my windbreaker. <laughs> the wind never stood a chance. <laughs> Look at it. Also, I can't, I can't tell if that's my hair. I'm praying that there's like a teddy bear back there. There's like a force, force perspective. I'm like, did I go out like that? Probably. But a lot of it was just like trying to convince people to follow the rules. I I didn't have a depth of knowledge about like what this thing was that we were trying to talk about. It was just like, don't do it until you can and then go for it, which is such a, it's just so hard for our minds to, to do that. And so I wanted to talk quickly about why I think there's a holy boundary placed around this. Uh, I think it's less uh, a good versus bad. Like if someone breaks this boundary, it's not that God's mad. It's not that, that you're bad. It, it's more about wise and foolish when Scripture talks about this. There's a wise way to live, and there's a foolish way to live. And so violating this boundary would be in the foolish category, uh, but God wants to give us wisdom so that we can live long and successful and healthy, flourishing lives. 
And so here's why I think this boundary is in place. Take it or leave it. But ultimately in our culture, we live in a culture that, that values the individual. And, and scripturally, they're, they're talking to a culture that values the communal, the togetherness. Uh, so it is going to be foreign to us. Every time we come to scripture, there's going to be a foreign aspect to it because we don't live in the same culture that they do. Uh, and in our culture, we think we can determine our own purpose. This is what our culture teaches us. You get to determine your own purpose as the individual. But as Christians, we believe that we were designed to live according to God's purposes. That as the creator has created us as creatures of the creator, it is wise and good to live according to the ways that God has for us. And so in our culture, when we have this determining our purpose in individualism, really the, the, the value is, is a freedom and self-expression and self-affirmation because we want to determine our purpose and, and flex our individuality. Whereas in Christianity and Scripture, the idea is that it's self-giving. To live in God's purposes revealed to us by Jesus who is self-giving for the good of the community because when the community flourishes, everybody flourishes. This is a different way than we think but hopefully you can track with me. We talked a little bit about last, this time, last, this last time. It's, uh, it's probably oversimplified, but when we come to relationships like marriage or even just romantic relationships, we often view them contractually because I want to be my own person and I want to have my own self-affirmation and I want to have my own self-expression. And so even sex in this, it's about what I can get or what I can give so that I can get something. Whereas we talked about in Christianity, uh, we talked about how Christianity is a covenant, which is different. Covenant language is not contractual. It, has to, it goes back to self-giving. Back over here, lastly, when we talk about contractual and when we talk about sex inside of relationships, ultimately it's either what I can get or what I can give to the other person. Hopefully both, right? This is a good contract as we can both give something to one another. It's mutually benefiting ultimately so that we can go back to these values, these individuality, determine our own purpose. And so there gets frustration when someone doesn't feel like they're getting what they should or when someone's giving too much or it's exploitative, which is true in all things. But in Christian idea of sex is that sex is to reinforce, reinvigorate, and renew the covenant that you both made to one another. And ultimately what you're saying is that my whole self belongs completely and exclusively to you. It's a renewing thing. We, we do this all the time. We do communion. Communion is a renewing act of us saying that we're following Jesus and so we're stepping into the new covenant and we're understanding God in this way. During baptisms, uh, many Christian traditions allow people that have already been baptized to touch the water to remind themselves, to remind themselves of their own baptism. And in the same way, we believe that physical intimacy is, is a covenant renewing. It's a self-giving aspect uh, where you are telling your partner, that I belong completely and exclusively to you. One of the problems is, I would say, is that our culture has held probably women to this, uh, this and sometimes men to this one. And so I'm uh, probably less, I'm, I'm preaching to everybody because the covenant is between two different people. But I, I'm assuming that uh, women are going, uh, I'm trying to do this over here and I feel like uh, alone, you know. I'm, not the, I'm the only one doing it. But uh, some might be preaching to some guys. But a covenant is between two people made. We're all do. This is what we're aiming for. It's a self-giving, renewing act every time, even the bad times, even the boring times, even the less fun and exciting times. It's a renewing, reinvigorating act.
This is why I believe in the intimacy triangle. I get a lot of questions about boundaries. And what happens when you talk about hard rules is that everybody tries to figure out where the rule is so they don't break it, but they're going to get as close as they can to it. And no human being is strong enough to do that too many times, just zero amount. And so I believe in the intimacy triangle. It's something that I, I've heard about, I thought about, I think it's helpful. That intimacy is a gift of commitment. And so you, because I, I, when I was growing up, we, we went through all kinds of different curriculum about dating and kissing, dating goodbye. And there was just lots of different things that we were supposed to think about when it came to all this. And ultimately, this has been the most simple and helpful way of like, how do we approach, approach physical intimacy? And so uh, I think in Christianity, uh, intimacy is tied to commitment. It's a gift of commitment. It's a gift of commitment. And for our, our holy boundary that we get from Scripture is marriage. And so if that's marriage, uh, then that's when physical intimacy gets closer and closer. But physical intimacy sex gets better. All the science tells us that you think the most exciting stuff going on is wild one-night stands. And all the science is saying it just gets better with age. Because, this is not Christian, this is just some science, the research suggests that the most satisfying sex for both parties happens within marriage or long-term relationships because the most important element of fulfilling sex life is trust. Just like God designed it. And so, I'm done. But, and so, the idea here is this. That like intimacy is built in that seen, safe, and satisfying way. And this is true for physical intimacy as well. So we are looking at relationships. We are building depth of relationships with one another. And then there is this thing that God has given us for our marital relationships to help us take covenants to the next level where we get to say something uh, about exclusivity to our partner. And ultimately, this trust helps that intimacy go deeper and ultimately more fulfilling for everyone. The science confirms it. Scripture confirms it. It's just a wise way to live. Hopefully that was helpful. Does anybody have any questions? Thank you. I appreciate that. That was meant to be funny. No questions came in. Let's wrap this up and pray. Zero questions. Thank you. Head, heart, hands. God wants us to know that uh, close, connected, consistent, committed relationships are God's will for us. And I know this is going to be hard for folks that are introverts. I, uh, I know be, just because we live in an extroverted world and they are so sick and tired of people telling them to be around people all the time. And so I'm not telling you to have lots of people. I'm not telling you that you have to go out all the time. I'm saying find some people and, and have some real fulfilling, lasting relationships. It's important. It's important. And our culture does such a bad job at encouraging this. It's hard for adults. We are told that our spouse is supposed to be everything and always for us, and we are supposed to be with them forever, but your spouse is not enough people. I mean, you need lasting relationships. Um, God has designed you for it. What does God want us to feel? We want you to feel the joy, Jesus says, make my joy complete by loving one another, right? God wants you to feel joy, love, safety, the health that God has for you in relationships. And lastly, uh, since God has purposed us for good relationships, prioritizing this is important. It's going to take work. You're going to have to schedule it. And I know our culture, we want organic relationships. We want authentic relationships. We want things to just spark and click and connect. And sometimes that doesn't happen. And so I'm giving you lots of permission to just bust out the calendar Join something. 
I got small groups going on, but also like bowling leagues. Find something that has consistency to it. I promise that's going to be helpful for developing relationships. Just get used to awkwardness. It's going to be awkward in the beginning, but when we're going to prioritize this, it might mean scheduling awkwardness, and that's okay. It's okay. Embrace that. Spiritual practice for this week, and I'm praying. Intentionally add some consistency to a relationship you have or want to prioritize. Put some coffee on the calendar. Once a month, dinner at my house or every other month, depending on whatever you could take. Uh, Get something consistent going. I promise in the long run, it will yield good results. Can we pray? Thank you, Father, for your encouragement, for your desire for us to flourish, for wanting us to have such healthy relationships that you command it. Commands are always so wild to me because it conveys to me that we absolutely need it and we will not seek it out on our own usually. So Father, we pray that you would give us the strength that we need, the wisdom, the insight, the direction, the priorities to make this a priority in our life. We will give you praise and thanks as we do so. Table Church, would you pray with me now the Lord's Prayer, saying, Our Father who is in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Your will.